Take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Isaiah 53 is where we'll be for a little bit. John chapter 11 is where we'll be for a little bit. You could turn to either of those. But we're actually in a sermon series we started a couple weeks ago through the Apostles' Creed. It's something that just this year we've started reciting every week. And um, not every church tradition does that. Um, Maybe you grew up in a church tradition that recited this. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you're like me. I I never recited this in church. I didn't even, frankly, really know it existed um, for most of my life. But then I began to be taught that early after the times of Jesus, after Acts 28, what we have recorded, the early church wanted to faithfully summarize the teachings of Scripture. And they wanted to put it in something that you could hold in your hand in fact, we printed some of these off where you can have an Apostles' Creed on some nice thick paper and uh, put it in your Bible or something or hang it on your fridge where you can have one of these at home. And they wanted to faithfully summarize the teachings of the Bible. And so they wrote, and honestly, we were talking this morning, the Apostles' Creed didn't get written like at one time and published. It just kind of starts popping up in these historical writings. And you see churches all over begin to use this. And then it got a little more codified later on uh, in about the 300s. There was a council at Nicaea that kind of took the Apostles' Creed as an outline, and then they expanded on it. And there were some disagreements. What do we believe about Jesus? Was he more of a man or more of God? I mean, who was he? And so they kind of expanded, but their basic outline was the Apostles' Creed. And it's called the Apostles' Creed, not because we believe the apostles wrote it, but because it's a faithful summary of what the apostles believed and taught. So what we're doing this fall is going line by line through this creed. Last week, we started by looking at the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and this week, we're looking at the next bit. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. If you look at the Gospel of John, towards the end in chapter 20, John gives you his purpose for writing. This is what John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 say. Jesus performed many other signs, which is an important word for John, signs in the presence of his disciples that aren't written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So track for just a second. John wrote a gospel account a historical, spiritual biography of Jesus of Nazareth. And obviously he couldn't include every detail of his life, but he says what I included was included for this express purpose, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Now Messiah and Christ are synonyms. They just come from two different languages. So don't get hung up on Messiah and Christ. Same exact thing. Okay, he's saying, I'm writing that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John wrote a book full of the signs of Jesus, these things Jesus did and said and taught, and he wrote them down so that when you read those things, you would be convinced in your heart that Jesus was not just a man. He was the Messiah, the anointed one from God. And that when you believe in him, you'll actually have life in his name. That's his purpose for writing. 
So back up in John's gospel. There's two major sections, okay? The first 12 chapters are what commentators call the book of the signs because over and over, John's saying, here's a sign, here's the first sign, here's another sign, here's another sign. And then in chapter 12, 11 and 12, it sort of culminates in this sign that seems to be greater than any sign that came before it because he raises Lazarus from the dead. And that's sort of the last great sign. John actually stops keeping track of the number of signs he's writing about. And then chapters 13 on are all about the last week of Jesus' life. The teachings he gives his, fo his followers uh, and then his crucifixion and resurrection at the end. But 13 to 17 is all like this last few days of his life. So the first 12 chapters are all about these signs, the signs John's talking about. Hey, if you look at these signs, you're gonna be convinced he's the Messiah, the Son of God. But then they culminate in the last sign. Lazarus lays dead in the tomb. Jesus' friend, Lazarus. Lazarus, who has two sisters, Mary and Martha, who we read about in other places. We were joking this morning, Lynn and Ann and I were talking about how Martha sometimes gets a bad rap because there's the story of Jesus is coming to their house and Mary's just sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha's running around the house, getting things clean, getting food in order. And Jesus says, uh, your sister Mary has chosen the better portion. Basically just relax, rest, come sit at my feet. This is the good thing that you need right now. Quit running around anxiously trying to get everything in order. And I don't know much about Mary and Martha other than a couple stories that we find in scripture. But I, I like to think creatively sometimes about scripture that I think we might get to heaven and Martha is gonna go, that was one time. <laughs> and he had to go write that down. I mean, I sat at his feet plenty. And the one time you write this thing down and now I'm forever known as the Martha. Are you a Mary or a Martha? Let me tell you about some Mary stories for a second. <laughs> But the other story we have about Martha is actually comes from John chapter 11. It's right before this greatest sign that John is getting ready to write about. It's right before Lazarus is raised from the dead. It's actually in the tension. The problem has been introduced. Lazarus has died. And Jesus waits a little bit and then comes to town. And when he shows up, Martha has this conversation with him, with Jesus. And she has seen enough of Jesus to know his power. She's convinced of who he is. And she says to him, with great honesty, honesty that I hope you and I can talk to Jesus with even today. If you were here, this bad thing wouldn't have happened. Jesus is big enough to take the honesty of that prayer. And for some of you, this might be, that might be the thing that the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you today. Like you're free to say that to him. Jesus, if you were more present in my life, maybe this bad thing wouldn't have happened. And so Jesus and her had this dialogue about that. And he says, you're gonna see him again. And Martha says, I know, I believe in the resurrection. Now they believed in a gen generic kind of end of days where the dead would be resurrected and live with God. But Jesus was obviously talking about something different. She says, I know, I know, I'll see him, he'll rise again in the resurrection, I know. And Jesus says in John 11, verse 25, he says this, I am the, am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And listen to her response. He has just made some wild claims. 
claims that exclude us from actually just calling him a good teacher. Because if someone taught this, you would think they were crazy. He says, I am the resurrection. I am a person, and if you're in me, you can have life. So based on this one verse, we have to throw out the possibility that Jesus is simply a good teacher. Because that's, if that's wrong, that's not good teaching. That's crazy. And he turns to her and says, do you believe this? And here's what Martha says. Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. Now what is it about Jesus' comments and explanations that make her use those words? She doesn't say, yes, Lord, I believe you're the resurrection and the life. She actually uses every word that we find in the Apostles' Creed right here. She talks, she references you. She's talking to Jesus. You, Jesus, are the Messiah, the Christ. You're the Son of God who comes into the world. What is it about what Jesus said that made Martha convinced that this was more than just a person, but that he's the Messiah and the Son of God, and even what she says at the beginning, Lord. She is, he is her Lord. And I found that story amazing. I, I, I picked these pieces out of the Apostles' Creed and I started doing some searching to figure out, do these terms show up together anywhere in the New Testament? Jesus, Christ, Lord, Son of God. And I came upon this passage and I thought, what an incredible passage. John is showing us that having observed these signs, Martha believed Martha had faith that this is exactly who Jesus was. But if we break these things down and ask ourselves, what is it that Martha believed in John eleven twenty six 26 and 27? What is it that we're being asked to believe today? What is it that the church a couple thousand years ago put in a summary of the Apostles' Creed saying, this is an essential to believe this about Jesus? What does it mean? I think it starts off by just taking the first word of this little line here, Jesus. It means we believe his name. Now, a name is really important. In our day and age, sometimes names don't have a lot of meaning. Sometimes you might not even know the meaning of your name. And even if you do know the meaning of it, your parents didn't necessarily choose that name because of the meaning. I think my wife's name comes from a file in a dentist's office. And uh, the, the unique spelling, K-E-R-R-I, and her parents thought, that's a pretty cool way to spell that. We'll take that and run with it. That was in no way some sort of prophecy about Carrie's oral health or wonderful teeth hygiene or that she would one day be a dentist or an orthodontist. Like, names don't work like that in our world today, right? We don't, we don't give names for those purposes. Names did mean something, though, in Scripture. God would sovereignly use the choosing of a name to foreshadow what that person would do. And the name Jesus... Again, Bible's written in different languages, so some of this stuff doesn't always translate. The name Jesus would, would have actually been more like Yeshua in some of these original languages, which is the Hebrew name Joshua. We say Joshua. Do you know what that name means? The Lord is salvation. But it's not just that there's a spiritual meaning to his name. There's something that's even more obvious with a name. 
And it's that Jesus is a person. He's a human being. And I love the way the gospel authors do this because when they were writing in the first century, within the first few decades after Jesus lived, they're giving you tons of footnotes. Had you been alive at the time, had you heard orally this gospel story, you would have heard things like Jesus of Nazareth. Why would they include that? They're saying, go fact check. You know somebody from Nazareth, don't you? Go ask. And they're dropping these names. They're dropping the name Nicodemus. They're dropping the names of the apostles. They're dropping these towns he visited. And they're saying, go look for yourself. If there was never any Jesus of Nazareth, wouldn't it have been so much easier to say Jesus from Jerusalem? And that was a massive town. If they were making the whole thing up, wouldn't they have picked a bigger town? I mean, that would be like saying Johnny from New York City or Johnny from Ball Ground, Georgia. One's a whole lot harder to verify. One's a whole lot smaller of a town where you can go ask some folks around, check some records, and get an answer pretty quickly. This is a real person, Jesus of Nazareth. There was no question in the first couple centuries after Jesus lived, there was no question about whether he was a real person or not. You guys realize that. What was debated was not whether or not he existed. What was debated was who he was and what he did and the significance of his existence. But no one at the time was foolish enough to say there was no Jesus. No, there was. The only question was what do you make of him? And that's the first thing we see in the creed is his name, that he really did live. He really was a real human being. And, and there's like an apologetic side to this, like yes, he really existed in history, what do we make of him? But then there's also a wonderful theological and spiritual side to this. John 1 says he took on flesh and lived among us. Eugene Peterson paraphrased that and said he pitched a tent, moved into camp, moved into town, moved into the neighborhood. So whatever else we're saying about Jesus, we're saying that he took on flesh to live among us, that he moved into earth, that he has a real story. He actually knows everything of what it means to be human. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 say this, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. That's what it means to confess Jesus. That he knows what it means to be a human being. He knows what it means to be a kid and a teenager and try to figure out a career and try to have an identity and try to have friends and relationships. He knows what it means to be tempted. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to feel hungry and feel pain. We're confessing Jesus, a real person, his name. And then the next thing we see in this little bit of the Apostles' Creed, though, is Christ. Now, this is not a name. This is his title. It's important to recognize Christ was not a last name. It's a title. Christ and Messiah go together, synonyms, okay, just different languages, and then they've been transliterated into English. But his title is Christ or Messiah, which means anointed one. And this word, this title, it is preloaded with so much meaning from the Old Testament, Genesis, all the way through the prophets. 
all this history and these prophetic writings and the poetry, the prayers of the Psalms are all building this suspense, this anticipation that there might be one person who would come who could bring a worldwide salvation and put everything back to the way God intended it. Jesus, listen to what he says in Luke 24. He told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So after his resurrection, Jesus gives his disciples a Bible study lesson about how the entire Old Testament story is fulfilled in him. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms was a kind of a shorthand way of talking about the Hebrew Bible, the, the old, what we call the Old Testament. And it was, he was saying that it was all about some Messiah who would come and live and suffer and die and rise from the dead so that people can have a real chance at repentance and forgiveness. Now, repentance just means turning your life around. This Messiah is gonna come so that everyone can have new life and forgiveness. But the hope for a Messiah began all the way back in Genesis chapter three. The serpent deceives Adam and Eve and God pronounces a curse of judgment. And here's what he says to the serpent. Because you've done this, you're cursed more than any livestock, more than any wild animal. You'll move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Right there in the third chapter of the Bible, we we have this hope that even though everything's gone wrong, right? We talked last week about how our story starts in Genesis 1. We're created in God's image and he created us because of an overflow of love. That's who we are at the core but we do live in a world where everything has gone wrong. And because everything has gone wrong, God wastes no time before giving us hope. And here's the hope, that one day, some offspring of humanity, some person is gonna come who's gonna crush the head of the serpent, who's gonna crush the head of evil and sin and death once and for all. In Genesis 3, we learn that we need a snake crusher to defeat the one who's the source of evil. We need a snake crusher to come and defeat the sin, the suffering, the injustice, the pain that this world brings. We need that snake crusher who's never been tainted by evil himself, has never succumbed to the lie and the temptation of the snake, but instead has stayed true to God once and for all. But then we read as we continue in the Old Testament of Abraham, who apparently his family is gonna be the one that's gonna produce this snake crusher. We read of Moses, who at times seems like he might be the snake crusher. Pharaoh is described over and over again as a snake-like figure and leader. And it seems like Moses might be the one to lead the people out of this awful slavery into freedom, into the promised land of communion with God. Along the way, they learn about God's presence and how it dwells in the tabernacle and the kind of priests they need so that they can have communion and fellowship with God's presence. But Moses was not the snake crusher. Then we learn about David, who was God's anointed king. We need an anointed one to rule, to defeat evil, to bring us God's presence. But David was not the Messiah. 
Isaiah talks a lot about this coming Messiah, but in his, uh, he has these poems kind of in the middle of Isaiah where he talks about this servant of God. So he calls the Messiah a servant. And, and these servant songs, these poems he writes, climax in Isaiah chapter 53. Listen to a couple of these verses with me. See, my servant will be successful. He'll be raised and lifted up, greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance, when he says his, he's talking about the servant. So even though he sounds like he's talking about past tense, he's talking about this like future perspective of what this servant Messiah is gonna do. His appearance was so disfigured that he didn't even look like a man. His form didn't resemble a human being. Later on, he says, uh, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have any impressive form and majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. This doesn't sound much like a Messiah, does it? This doesn't sound like an anointed king sent from God to rule and reign victoriously over evil, does it? It sounds like someone who's a massive failure. People didn't even want to look at him. He was not necessarily beautiful. He was someone who was despised, looked down on. And here's what it says in Isaiah 53, verse 4. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. This Messiah is going to come, and he's going to look more like a servant than a king. That's what Isaiah 53 is trying to tell us, that the hope for the Messiah would be definitely a king who reigns and a king who defeats evil, but he would do it through serving others. He would be victorious through his own defeat. He would give life through his own death, and he would crush evil by actually being overcome by evil. All of this that I'm trying to give a four, five, six, seven minute overview of the Old Testament is what would have come preloaded for anyone in the first century who would have read and been steeped in and probably memorized massive chunks of the Old Testament. When you said Messiah, they would have gone, the one? The one who's going to save us and redeem us and forgive our sins and give us life forever? And then they wrote this Apostles' Creed and said, I believe in Jesus, Messiah. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that this Jesus of Nazareth, this real human, is the one sent from God. But there's more. They believe in his name, his title, and then his divinity. It says, his only son. Well, if you read it in the context of the creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his, the Father's only son. And actually, this theme of divinity is very closely tied to the hope for a Messiah because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God makes a covenant with David for some future offspring of David to be a king who would rule and reign forever, he would never stop sitting on the throne. He says, he will be a son to me. This piece of the creed, his only son, 
tells us of Jesus' divinity, that he really is God. He is fully God and fully man. Jesus came to make the Father known. He has come to be the perfect image of God among us so that we might know what God is like. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And if you have an image of God in your head that does not look, act, think, or talk like Jesus, you don't have a biblical picture of who God is. And that's why so many people might struggle with it, Old Testament, New Testament, and at times God might look mean, at times God might look so big and, and, and we could never approach him, we could never talk to him, we could never have a personal relationship with him, but then we go, but I like Jesus. Well, here's the good news. God has sent Jesus to say, this is what I'm like. This is who I am. And in John chapter five, here's what Jesus says. Truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he's doing. And he'll show him greater works than these so that you'll be amazed. This little phrase in this creed was included to leave no doubt that they believe that Jesus is God. They believe that Jesus is God. They, they didn't just think he was a good man or a good teacher or a prophet or some rogue rabbi. They believe that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is God in the flesh, which leads to the last bit of the creed, our Lord. Now, if you look through the Apostles' Creed, there are only a couple places where you have a personal pronoun, and it's always, I believe. But in this one place, they do put this plural, our. They put themselves into it. Now, the whole creed's meant to tell you who God is, so that's why they're not trying to write about themselves and their experience, but, but in this place, they couldn't help it. And I think part of why they couldn't help it is because of, of something C.S. Lewis talked about around 100 years ago. A little less. He, he talked about when we read Jesus, there's certain conclusions people want to come to. But if you actually read all of his words, we've got to reckon with what he said. Because C.S. Lewis put it very simply. He said, he's either a liar or he's a lunatic or, or he's Lord. And, and we've got to make sense of who Jesus is because, because of that last option, because he claimed to be God. If that's true, it changes everything. Now, the other ways to explain it is that he could just be a liar. He could just be making stuff up. Or he could be loony. I mean, he could be absolutely off his rocker, mentally unstable. That's an option. We could go that way. Because today, if someone walked in saying they were Jesus who's returning, that's what we would all do. You're crazy. But Jesus was not simply a good teacher because he taught that he was God. So if we just think he was a good teacher and I like the golden rule, treat others as you wanna be treated, I, I like the way he said we should love other people, I like the way that he brought people in and he didn't judge people, and man, he was so inclusive and he says he's gentle and, and he's kind and he has compassion for people who are hurting and, and he helps people, that's the kind of Jesus I like. What do you make of his words where he says that he's God? that he claims to be eternal and have eternal fellowship with the Father. That he says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. That the whole point of Jesus' ministry seemed to be that you could have fellowship with the real God who is present here today. And you can only have it through him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
So in the creed, as they wrestled with Jesus Christ, his only son, they came to the conclusion that if this is who he is, he must be the Lord of my life. What would it have meant for them to confess this? Well, first, it was a pledge of allegiance. To be our Lord would have been this pledge of allegiance, and it would have been a humble and glad submission to the ultimate authority over everything. And it's actually that that got him crucified. The Roman world in which Jesus lived was perfectly happy to have many gods. They were fine with that. So long as you could also confess Caesar as top. So you, you go worship, go do your thing, go do your sacrifices, have your gods. But Jesus seemed to have enough exclusivity in his message that it made the Roman rulers very uneasy. And for, in the first couple centuries, uh, for people to say, he's my Lord, they would have said, Caesar is not. The Jewish faith is not. No, no, no. Jesus is Lord over everything. He's the ultimate authority of my life. This would have been a, a pledge of allegiance to what they saw as the greatest authority. But then the second point, I think, of what it meant for them is that it would have been a life shaping confession. This was a way for them to stake their entire identity on this Jesus from Nazareth. Their confession of him would not have been just totally mental or theoretical, but if I'm honest, that's how we come to things like the creed sometimes. It's theology. It's something I've got to memorize and I've got to work out the theory of and I've got to be able to explain it. Let me go read some books on what it means for him to be Christ. Let me read some books on what it means for him to be Lord. L let me look up the verses. Let me memorize them. Let me be able to explain and articulate it. And that's what this whole thing means. But for them, this would have been a life-shaping confession. They didn't just want to say it with their mouth because for them to say it with their mouth would have put their life at risk. So they had to count the cost. Am I willing to give my life to this man who was God? Am I willing to confess him as Lord and let him have control of me? And if you can settle the fact that he really is Jesus, he really is the Messiah, the anointed one from God, and he really is God in the flesh, the eternal son of God, then that last answer becomes a whole lot easier. See, we have a different problem today. We want the mental, the theoretical, the lip confession of Jesus because oftentimes church is not a place to come and confess the Lord. It's a place to come and improve our lives. Let me get a little bit of church, some good advice, some practical tips to get through some hard days. Let me tell you, Jesus will help you get through hard days. But if we're here for 10 tips for better finances and, and five pathways to a, a healthier marriage and here's the tips and tricks to make parenting easy, first of all, I don't have any of that at all. I can give you tips and tricks to make it all harder. <laughs> but what we're here to do is we're actually here to say, you know what? Life is incredibly hard. And it seems like with every turn of a season that I was really looking forward to, a new wave of, of hardship comes on me. Gosh, I really look forward to this time in the future when I would be, but then once I got there, it, it was way harder than I thought. I really looked forward to being in ministry full time. Gosh, that was, it's really hard. 
oh, I just can't wait to be out of college and get my job. I'll go back to college gladly. I'm, I'm just tired of renting and I want to buy my own home. I'll send you the receipts of the last three weeks of my house. It's hard. I love kids. And then you step into a season of finally being willing to have kids and, and maybe you find that you can't. Or maybe God gives you the kids you asked for and you find that this is way harder than I ever thought. We keep living our life thinking at some point it's gonna get easier, at some point it's gonna get better, and with every step, it's incredibly difficult. We're not here to make our lives better. What we're here to do is we're here to say, life is incredibly hard. I do not have the ability or the capacity to hold it together myself, but I am coming here together with a bunch of other people who are honest enough to admit how hard life is so that together we can look at the giver of life. And trust that no matter how hard life is, I still have him. And he can give me love and joy and peace way down deep so that my circumstances become irrelevant. That they no longer control my joy. They no longer control my peace. That's what it means to confess Jesus as Lord. Not for us today to come and say, uh, I'm going to come to church hoping to change my circumstances, hoping to get some tips and tricks to make my life better. I'm going to come because I got some kids and I've realized, uh, not my word, but a, a word of a guy that's a spiritual director, so he's, a, he's, he's real close to God. He calls his kids feral. <laughs> hey, I, I, I've had kids long enough. They're feral. I'm going to come drop them off. I'm going to start going to church. I think I'm a believer. Y'all do what you do. Make them good. Let me just tell you, my heart at Shalford is not to make bad people good. My heart, our heart here, is not to help you behave. It's not even to help you get by. My heart here is to introduce you to somebody named Jesus who knows everything that you're going through and has both the depth of love and the heights of power to bring real meaningful change to your life. So that when we together look at the truth of who Jesus is from the Bible, we can be real. Some of this is hard to believe. Some of this I don't understand on the first reading. Some of this, I don't understand how it has an impact on my life, but if we can be honest about the difficulties of this, if we can be honest about the difficulties of our life, then we can come to the other side and say, I'm convinced. I confess Jesus as my Lord because like the disciples said, you have the words of life. Where else am I gonna go? That's why we're here, to lift up Jesus, to run to Jesus, and to be honest with each other along the way about why we need him. So now we come back to Martha. She had seen enough of Jesus to know he was a real person, to be convinced that he was actually the Messiah that her people had been waiting for, that he was anointed from God to destroy evil and bring life for humanity. She saw and believed that he was the resurrection 
and the life, that he's the only one who brings hope to hopeless situations, the one who meets us in our weaknesses when we're at the end of ourselves. He's the one with grace enough to meet us in our failures and our fears. So she confessed that Jesus is Lord, the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God. But do you know what I love about the story of Martha there in John 11? She gets to this place of confession while she's actually in the lowest valley of her story. She doesn't step back with arms folded and say, why don't you do something first? She's not bartering with Jesus. She's not saying, why don't you show me? I mean, I've seen other stuff, right? She's not saying, I saw how you healed this guy, son. That guy didn't even know you. This guy came up off the street and has never met you before, and you said, my son's sick. You spoke a word and healed him. Jesus, you know me, and you're going to let my brother lay in the grave? You know Lazarus. I mean, she could have said that. Can I be honest? That's what I say. Jesus, I, you're taking care of this person. You're taking care of this family over here. You're taking care of that pastor. You're taking care of other people. You want me to confess you as Lord? Why aren't you doing it for me? Like we find ourselves in Martha's place all the time, needing Jesus. In the tension of our story not being finished. And Jesus has the audacity to look you in the face in the midst of your pain and say, what do you believe about me? And we wanna go, can you finish this first? Let me get on solid footing and then I'll give you an answer. Maybe when I get this debt paid off and stop having that hanging over my head, maybe when I can get my kids in and out, graduated to college, maybe, maybe when I'm not so busy looking for a job, I can give you an answer. Maybe when my life stops falling apart, I don't know, Jesus, maybe if you stepped up and helped me, I could give you a better answer, but right now, I'm not thinking about what I believe in you. But do you understand the context for Martha? Her brother is dead. She's looking at the man who has the power to bring him back. And in the midst of all of her hurt, and let's be honest, all of her misunderstanding, she doesn't get it. She doesn't know for sure what Jesus is about to do with Lazarus. She has no promise that he's about to come back. but she still has to reckon with the reality of who Jesus is. And the good news is, Jesus is who he is regardless of the way your life looks this morning. Can you rest in that? Jesus is who he is regardless of how your life looks. And now Jesus turns to you with an invitation. Do you believe this about me? Do you believe this about me? No, 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 no. Stop thinking about out there. Stop thinking about the life that's so hard. Stop thinking about all the answers you don't have. Look at me. You ever do that when you're talking to your kids? You get down and you, you're trying to eliminate all the distractions. And you go, look, look at me. Look right here at me. And they're looking at you in the eyes. And that's what Jesus is trying to do with us this morning. He's looking at you and he's like, no, 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 no. Don't, don't think about something else. Just look right here at me. Do you believe this about me?
If you do, I will take my life and lay it down for you. If you do, I will take your life in my hands and I'll hold it and I have it and I see you and I love you and no matter how bad things get, I will never leave you. And no matter how good things get, that's not as good as it'll get one day. But Jesus is extending this invitation to you this morning. Do you believe this about me? Let's pray. Just an attitude of prayer. Let, let's, let's ponder that together. Jesus is inviting each one of us to make that confession that we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. For some of us this morning, you're invited to make that confession for the millionth time. And let's be honest, you've needed it a million and one. And we need the reminder again and again, Jesus, this is who you are. And my circumstances aren't going to change that. But for some of us here this morning, this might be the first time you've ever been invited to confess that about Jesus. Maybe you've never heard this or maybe you've never heard it in this way or maybe you've heard it and your eyes have never been opened to fully grasp it. You've never been brought to a place of recognizing that you need it for yourself personally. But you're invited this morning. And, and can I tell you what? Romans 10 talks about what it means to be saved and it talks about believing in our heart and confessing with our mouth. And a confession just means we're saying it. Jesus, this is it. It doesn't mean you... There's not like a certain level of passing faith and failing faith. Like, I believe it at 50% in Jesus. I know that's not enough, so I'm waiting to muster up some more belief. No, no, what it's saying is, I don't have the answers, and I believe, but help my unbelief is what someone said to Jesus one time. Your invitation is not to see how much faith you can muster up. Your invitation is to come and fall into the arms of the Middle Eastern man from Nazareth who is God, who gave his life for you, who when you fall into his arms will hold you forever. Is this a confession you can make this morning? I hope for those of us who are making this confession for the millionth time, the Holy Spirit meets us in our souls and stirs us up. To faith and good works stirs us up to live a life built on this kind of faith. But if this is the morning that, for the very first time, you've been invited to make this confession, I'd like to invite you to make that confession public. No, that doesn't mean coming up here and saying something in front of everyone, but I think it does mean telling somebody, hey, I, I need to confess that Jesus is the Christ, is God's only Son, and I need Him to be my Lord. I would love to be that person that you tell. And I'd love for our church to be a community where you get to work that out and figure out what it means that you're now turning your life over to Jesus. So in just a minute, we're gonna sing a couple more songs. And I wanna invite you, if this is the first time you need to confess that, would you just come and pray with me or grab someone else you know and trust in this room? I realize that might not be me. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. Thank you for sending your son to show us what you're like. Thank you for sending your son to live as a human being, to taste all of our temptation, all of our weakness, all that it means to be human, and do it perfectly on our behalf so that 
We don't have to. But we can instead live a life of trust and faith in you. I pray as you're working in the hearts of all of us this morning, Father, I pray that we would just surrender to you. We do, we submit to you, Jesus, because you are our Lord. I pray that if you're birthing faith in anyone's heart right now, if you're calling them for the very first time to make this confession about who you are, Jesus, that they would turn their sin and their suffering over to you, that they would confess there's nothing they could do to save themselves, but they want to give their lives to Jesus, and Jesus, they want to take your life as their own. I pray you'd give them the courage to tell somebody this morning. We love you, Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.